0: This is the Gridley Wave
1: Network.
2: Hi, I'm Mike Resnick. You're listening to Dateline Jassoom and I hope you're enjoying yourselves.
0: From the Chicago Bureau of the Bosnian
3: Blade... Stage line Jason,
1: the
0: Pantheon Press Production, for fans of Edgar Allan Spurrows and Pulp Adventure. Here's your host, Elmo. Welcome to show number 21. Thanks for joining us. Today we have an interview with science fiction author Mike Resnick, the winner of five Hugo Awards and also a Nebula Award. He's written 52 novels, a number of short stories, he's edited 45 anthologies, and he's also written 9 nonfiction books. But before all that, he was a geeky fan, just like us. And in fact, he was an assistant editor at one of the all-time great Burroughs fanzines, Herbdom, which itself won a Hugo Award. So, I present to you now, Mike Resnick.
3: All right, we're here at WindyCon with uh, science fiction author Mike Resnick. Mike, hello. Welcome to Dateline Jessum.
2: Pleasure to be here.
3: Mike is, of course, a world-famous science fiction author, but I wanted you to take us back a little bit to the days before all of that, when you were growing up and discovering books and discovering reading, and this is Dateline Jasum, so I'm, I'm curious how you were first introduced to one of my favorite authors, Edgar Rice Burroughs.
2: Well, I suspect, I, I it's a long, long time ago, yeah. i I'm nearing retirement, but I suspect I probably read some Tarzan comic books, maybe a John Carter of Mars one, and then I read the books, Mm -hmm. and I became an instant fan of them, and the way we discovered uh, the world of science fiction fandom was uh, in 1962. When I was 20 years old and had just been married, I picked up one of the Burroughs reprints that Ace had just started coming out with. Mm-hmm. And there was a blurb in there from somebody called Camille Casdasu out of the Reverbdom. Okay. He didn't have to be a genius to figure out ERB yeah. done that magazine yeah. about Burroughs. Yeah. So I haunted all the Chicago book and magazine stores for months trying to find a copy of this, not knowing what a fanzine of,
3: was. Oh, the fanzine. And uh,
2: you know, none of them could help me. None of them could find a way to order it for me. Right. so uh, finally I wrote to Don Wolheim at Ace and asked him to forward the letter on to the editor mm-hmm. and that was Kaz who sent me a few magazines a few fanzines rather and within about two or three months I was the assistant editor of verbdom, and I went to the very next Worldcon and we discovered the rest of fandom, and we found out that Chicago fandom was actually meeting 80 feet from my front door. We no, would really? see them every third Saturday, you know, these 300-pound guys and these, these wildly skinny girls, all of them rather poorly dressed, sneaking into this apartment with tomes under their arms. and we thought they were probably members of SNCC and CORE, if you remember the early 60s, and the, the tomes were, were lists of all their memberships and all the people they were going to get. Well, then it turned out it was just fandom, but we had to go to Washington, D.C. to the Worldcon to meet them.
3: Let, let me slow you down for a second. Yeah. Was, at that time, was Kaz sort of working in a vacuum uh, as far as the rest well, of the Well, Kaz
2: it? was in New Orleans, yeah. and I was in, uh, or he was in Baton Rouge, actually. I was in Chicago. And Kaz knew Burroughs fans, but uh, until he started going to World Cons, I doubt that he knew anybody else. Mm -hmm. When we went to our first World Con, we didn't know anybody but Burroughs fans, but a kindly old gentleman in a white suit saw us looking rather wan and hopeless, and he took us out to coffee and showed us around, and Mm -hmm. we didn't know for a couple of hours because he didn't have his badge on, but that was Doc Smith. He was the first mm-hmm. fan we ever met.
3: Oh, really? What was, yeah. meeting, what was Doc Smith like back then?
2: Oh, he was a sweet, sweet guy. I, we had, you know, he, he certainly had no airs about him and no pretensions. Uh, we, we thought he was just another fan. He looked mm-hmm. like an old guy in a good humor suit, to tell you mm-hmm. the truth.
3: At, at this time, were you a science fiction fan, or were you primarily a Burroughs fan?
2: Or? Uh, I had read science fiction all my life. I. I went there mostly to meet the Burroughs people because they were the only ones I knew. Mm-hmm. Uh, on our very first date, Carol and I uh, went to a play in Chicago, and then we went to the Morrison Coffee Shop, The hotel since been torn down, but that was where they held the 1952 Worldcon. And we talked science fiction till 5 in the morning when they threw us out so they could shut the place up. Neither of us had ever met anybody who read this stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, that was back in the days when you hid your copy of Analog or Astounding on the bus uh, inside a copy of Playboy because that was more acceptable. <laughs> and it was—we you know, we knew somebody must read it. I mean, they had yeah. to print more than two two copies a month. Yeah. And it, it was just a revelation to meet each other. And why then, do, you, why later do you think that? It.
3: Why do you think that was? And then second of all, I think even today, science fiction fans have a fan, uh, have a sort of a, a reputation of being geeky sometimes. And, well, they
2: and are sort pretty geeky. You know, well, uh, the, and, the, most science fiction fans, uh, you know, they can solve all the problems of the world, but they can't put on matching socks or hold <laughs> a job. Uh, somebody once asked me uh, you know, to define fandom, the good and the bad, and I said, you know, the best thing about fandom... And if you look around you, you would see it is that it is so tolerant. Mm-hmm. And the worst thing about fandom is that it has so much to be tolerant of. Mm-hmm. And I do not say that from any any position other than that of a fan. I'm, I've been a fan all my life. I, I haven't been a science fiction writer all my life. And we come to these things. I still hang out with fans. You know, somebody needs help hanging stuff in the art show, or setting up the Huckster Room, I'm always there to help because I'm come a fan. To,
3: when you come to these cons, do you, is it more business or are you coming in as a fan? You no, the one DVD I go to anyone? for
2: business and I, I line up my business for the year and, and you barely see me mm-hmm. is at the World Con because all the editors are there and it's easier to go to New York five, yeah. six times a year. When I come to something like WindyCon or any of the other regional conventions, I come to just enjoy myself. Now, I'll do a little business tomorrow morning with Eric Flint because I've been doing stuff with him. We've co-edited an anthology, and we'll see what else we can do. But it'll take an hour, and one hour out of of a four-day weekend doesn't strike me as a business weekend. Okay.
3: All right, back to the days when you were... A real fan, I mean, only yeah. a fan. Only and, a fan. And, and you were co-editor, associate editor
1: of Herbdom. Yeah, I Herbdom. At,
2: and, has, and yeah, we won the Hugo. We were the only fans, or Burroughs fans, ever to win a Hugo. Mm-hmm. And they changed the rules after that, because back then, that was in 1966, you didn't have to be a member of the Worldcon to vote for the Hugo. Now mm-hmm. you do, of course.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: there were about five, 600 attendees back then. And Kaz had a mailing list of about 900. <laughs> All he did was send out the ballot to his whole mailing list. Okay. And Erbdom so. won, and the next year they changed the rules.
1: Yeah.
3: What, what kinds of things were you doing with Erbdom at the time that was maybe different from what other fans
1: did?
2: I don't think we were doing anything different from the Burroughs Bulletin. I think we were just doing it better. We We, we had... Me and, uh, you know, I became a Hugo-winning writer. We had Neil McDonald, who became a pro artist. We had Jeff Jones, who became a top pro artist. Mm -hmm. We had John F. Roy, who was writing for all the Burroughs publications, but I always thought he saved his best stuff for herbdom. Mm -hmm. So we we had a pretty good crew there. Uh, We had Dick Lupoff would write for us from time to time. Another artist was Larry Ivey, who was a pro. Uh, yeah, there, there were not a lot of weak links. I mean, certainly some of the general fanzines had writers that we couldn't begin to match, but as far as the Burroughs fanzines went, uh, we, were, we were the cream of the crop. Yeah. Also, he published four or five issues a year,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: that helped too. Uh, you know, Vern, Vern could go a long, long time without publishing when he had to right. or when he could get away with it.
3: And what kinds of things were you putting in those fanzines? I, I mean, what if you had sort of a, a theme or a focus, or was it now, just sort of scattershot? Well,
2: things? it was scattershot. Anything interesting about Burroughs. Now, I haven't opened a Burroughs fanzine in more than 30 years, so I can only remember a couple of the things. I know that the first thing I did for him was, was a thoroughly researched map of Barsoom. And uh, then we had one of the, the artists, I think it was Neil MacDonald, draw it. And I always thought the best article ever to appear in a Burroughs fanzine appeared in Herbdom. John Roy did it on the fictional Edgar Rice Bros. You know, he wrote himself into so many of the yeah. stories yeah. that you could actually create a fictional biography of where he was and who right. he knew at such and such right. a date. And John did that. And, and, I, and
3: I think that he ended up appearing in his Guide to Barsoom. Is, is uh,
2: it familiar. may have. I, it's been so long, I don't, I don't recall. Yeah. But I borrowed from that, uh, John Betancourt about three years ago began a, uh, magazine called, uh, Adventure Tales, which is mostly pulp reprints, but he asked me to do a Burroughs article, which I hadn't done any of in, god, more than a quarter of a century. And I remembered that thing of John's and I kind of took off from there to, to, to expand upon it somewhat. Right. I, I can't remember the name of the article. But
3: And, and cool. at this time, you would have been, like, what
1: age?
2: Well, in, I was born in, in 1942, so okay. I You're joined Herbdom staff when I was 20. Okay. And I was probably totally out of Burroughs fandom okay. less than seven or eight years later. Okay. I... I was a pro then. And I just started spending more time with the you, really you had
3: already sold your first novel
1: by by then? Oh, well, I'd sold
2: my first novel at 20, but it wasn't one I was willing to put my name onto. Right. I sold a couple of Burroughs pastiches to Don Grant and then to Warner's Library. Uh, I think it was called Paperback Library, then the Ganymede books. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find them humiliating. I hate it when people bring them up to me to autograph. Now, I will say that they're very good Burroughs imitations. Mm-hmm. Uh, But they're horrible Resnick books. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I write is nothing like what I was writing then, and I I wince a little every time I have to autograph them. Mm -hmm. But unlike, say, Harlan Ellison, who when you bring him one of his old books, rips it up, I will sign it. I just would rather nobody ever remembered it.
3: And, I mean, you actually had, had written pure... Burroughs fan fiction, it, wasn't there a story Lost Sea of Mars? Oh yeah,
2: anything? I did one called The Forgotten Sea of Forgotten Mars it uh, yeah. came, came out the year it won the Hugo that was part of the reasons it won too, they gave it away for free,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it was about a 30,000 word sequel to Atlanta of Gatho and uh, I later uh, took most of the plot and most of the characters changed their names and made it half of that first Ganymede book yeah. okay. um, but
3: I mean you were doing then what fans do now, I mean to me there's no reason for you to
2: be embarrassed or, or not well, like that. I, I, you, were,
3: you were being a fan.
1: That's
2: well, what I, what I was doing was trying to write stories that if you found them in Burroughs' safe, you would have thought he wrote them, yeah. which meant there was nothing original, creative, or uniquely myself in any of them. Right. And uh, as I say, I've become, you know, as you pointed out, and I'll say I'm honestly a major writer in this field, for writing Resnick stories, not right. for writing Burroughs' stories. and I, I find those a, a little humiliating to sign that that I once thought that was uh, something I should do professionally. I never minded, you know, signing or or seeing Forgotten CMRs or any of my fanzine articles, but I, I should never have sold those professionally.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, even at that time, did you was it your intention to be a writer? I mean, did oh, you I was a writer write at that time. I sold my 20?
2: first story at fifteen, and as I say, by yeah. twenty, I was a full-time writer. Yeah. I just wasn't writing science fiction. Right. Uh, One of the things was I could grind out an adult novel, as we called them back then, euphemistically, in four days, and then it would take about five months to write a good science fiction book, and they paid the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had a new wife, and shortly thereafter a new daughter, and I couldn't afford to take five months to write for Cooley Wages.
3: Yeah. Just recently, in, in the last few years, you wrote the introduction to The uh, the Land That Time Forgot. Uh, yeah, the, uh, University the University of Nebraska.
2: of Nebraska Press, you know, just out of the blue, I didn't know anybody there, uh, contacted me and asked me to write an introduction to it, and uh, I did. Did they
3: know of you? They must have known of you. Well, yeah, they mu-
2: somebody must have recommended me, because I've really been totally out of Burroughs fandom and yeah. Bur- Burroughs everything for 30 years. Yeah. And uh, they asked me to write an introduction to it, so I did. And then this year, they asked me to write an introduction to Phil Farmer's uh, Tars and Alive, which they republished. And I wrote that, too. Of course, I know Phil, but uh, it was really about Burroughs. And I've borrowed Burroughs a bit uh, from time to time in my fiction. Not borrowed, that's the wrong way to put it. I've used him as a jumping-off point. I had a Hugo-nominated story two years ago called A Princess of Earth, which, you know, you don't have to have read Burroughs to have liked it and voted for the Hugo, but it helped. Yeah and uh... a few years back there was a uh... an anthology uh... damn if i can remember the name of it now they were all stories set in the solar system and uh... i collaborated with uh, another hugo nominated writer called shane bell uh... called the flower children of barsoom oh really yeah uh... <laughs> now, that's
1: we, we thought wonder. what if
2: you went to mars and that was really the case that you know there was a john carter
1: yeah.
2: but what if space travel was really cheap and instead of heroic astronauts what you really found there along with john carter were a bunch of flower children who thought he was kind of silly uh that, you know you, you you throw love at people instead of long swords yeah. and it, it, it was a tongue in cheek article uh, a yeah. story but we sold it and uh, i'm sure over the years I've, I've probably done a couple of others i know that my favorite character is a, a parody of a character called Lucifer Jones. He, he's he been in three books. Uh, favorite
1: character of your own. Yeah.
2: yeah. Adventures, exploits, and mm-hmm. encounters. Each of them is set on a different continent back in the 1920s and 30s. And, and parodies every bad movie and pulp story set on that continent. And in the one that was in Africa, there was a chapter in which... Uh, Lord Bloomstoke, I borrowed the name from Edgar, was uh, was a British lord who was hiding from his creditors in the middle of the jungle with a tribe of apes that he was converting to Fabian socialism. Right. Uh, one of the things I remembered was he called them all George to show that the the group was more important than the individual. Yeah. And it was a lot of fun. And as I say, here and there, I'm sure I've, I've uh, borrowed a few lines, few notions right. uh, from Burroughs. Uh, yeah, I, but I but I've ever, written so yeah, much, it's yeah. hard to remember. I'm, I'm not senile yet, I'm just productive.
3: Do you think he wrote about the human condition or was he just writing adventure stories to, to uh, help
1: people
2: pass the time? I think he was writing adventure stories uh, with, with all due respect and I, I don't mean to insult any of your listeners no, I, I no. outgrew Burroughs a long, long time mm-hmm. ago because uh, while there were always new adventures there were no in, new insights and there, there wasn't a very mature level of, of understanding uh, you know it's fine to say I still live when you're in a dungeon but if you're not John Carter you know you have to find alternatives uh, Jack Williamson who's been a dear friend for 40 years gotten deep shit about 50 years ago being the first writer to my knowledge to suggest that uh, you don't sacrifice an entire race of people to save the heroine from a fate worse than death. Yeah, that, yeah. You know, maybe it's not worse than death. Yeah. Maybe it's not worth 20,000 guys <laughs> giving their lives for. Yeah. I mean, Burroughs would never have agreed, but you know, once you grow up, you do agree. Yeah. Sorry about that, girls. <laughs> um,
3: you've been to Africa several so times. A
2: number of times, yeah. yeah.
3: How did you first end up going to Africa? Is it something you had a lifelong interest in? I've always there, wanted or?
2: to do it, uh, not because of Burroughs, okay. uh, who you know, obviously was a fantasy Africa. Right. He was writing mm-hmm. about with you know, forgotten cities yeah. behind every rock yeah. and talking apes. But uh, the author who gave me the imp- impetus, and I finally as an editor brought him back in the printer after he'd been out of print 40 years, was a guy called Alexander Lake, an American, unlike a Brit. Most, most of the guys who wrote about Africa were Brits who had been a white hunter there in uh, the 19-teens and 20s and uh, wrote so evocatively about it, uh, not about killing animals, uh, but but about Africa that I always wanted to see it and uh, by the time I went, and I guess it was 1986 was the first trip, I I had a bigger African library than science fiction library. I I just was fascinated by it. And we've been to Kenya four times and we've been to Uganda, Zimbabwe, Malawi, Botswana, Tanzania, and uh, we've also been to Egypt, but if you call Egypt part of Africa, the Egyptians all get mad at you, so we, we don't include that usually.
3: Well, I think we tend to we tend to think of Africa as just this one place. We tend to it's think of it as a, sub-Saharan
2: Africa, but Africa a, is a 20% mass, of the world's landmass. Yeah. There's a lot of difference there,
1: yeah.
2: and uh, as different as it was... Almost no place that Burroughs described exists. Right.
1: Uh,
2: there's no jungle there. First off, they call it the bush, but you, you, the closest thing to what he describes is the Ituri rainforest, but you don't find that near the coasts of Africa. You find that about 1,500 miles inland, mm-hmm. and you wouldn't want to live there. It's, it's disease-ridden, and there are places where for days the sun doesn't shine because the trees are mm-hmm. so thick. There's about a foot of water on the ground. It always rains, and... Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the only thing mo- remotely resembling Tarzan's jungle. Right. Uh, most of Africa, most of the interesting parts of Africa that we've been to, where most of the animals are, are in East and, and North Central Africa, uh, or South Central Africa rather, and they're vast plateaus. Uh, animals congregate where the living's the easiest. It's mm-hmm. not easy. If you got to keep walking around trees and having things <laughs> pounce on you from overhead, it's right. easy where it's nice, open plains. That's where you find these mega herds of, of a million wildebeest and half a million zebras. And, of course, where you get all the herbivores, that's where you get all the carnivores who are kind of camp followers. Mm-hmm. They go where the meat is. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's not much living in the uninteresting parts. Mm-hmm
3: and and those that fascination and those visits have inspired you to some of your works like Paradise? Oh yeah, uh, about, I or? think
2: I've had what, 28 uh, Hugo nominees and I think at least 20 of them are either stories set in Africa or set in African analogs right. like Paradise or, or Ivory
1: mm-hmm.
2: and yeah, uh, my first four Hugo winners were all African stories
1: mm-hmm. uh, I I uh,
2: I don't think you have to look any further afield than, than here.
1: Uh,
2: I've never found any, or been able to create any civilization as alien as some of the ones I found in Africa. And mm-hmm. I, I simply uh, metamorphize the, the those into, into alien characters, and, and it gives me a much better understanding of the civilization because I don't have to invent it from the ground up. Example, Kenya, which is a western country, It's got a megalopolis uh, in Nairobi, four or five million people. It's got an airport, which isn't as busy as O'Hare, but certainly does a lot more business than my airport of Cincinnati. Mm -hmm. It's got another million plus city of Mombasa. And yet, in 1900, not a single tribe in Kenya had a word for wheel. In 1900, not a single one had a written language. Uh, To this day, 80% of all Kenyan youth, black, well, I shouldn't say black and white, they're all black. Uh, male and female together undergo circumcision rituals now that's a euphemism for females that's a clitoridectomy and whenever a right thinking positive thinking church or government anywhere in Africa including Kenya has tried to get rid of this hideous barbaric custom that offends all Westerners it has been the Kenyan and the black African women not the men who have protested anybody trying to end their their cherished right of passage to adulthood.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you have a president, well, I, uh, I can't remember the name of the new guy, but the one before him was Daniel Eric Moy, who worked for $20,000 a year. That was the presidential salary. He was president for 20 years. Prior to that, he'd been a poorly paid school teacher. And at the end, he owned 200,000 acres of the richest farmland in Keenla, Kenya, He owned the entire fleet of DC-3 airplanes for Air Kenya, and he owned every Mercedes taxi cab in the country. And Westerners objected to that, but none of the Africans did, because the chief is supposed to be the richest guy. And if he took a little money out of the treasury, well, that's what goes with being a chief, and don't you wish you were one? And as I say, this is as close to a Western society as I've ever found in Africa. Some of the others are really deeply weird. So uh, as I said, I have to look no further than that. (laughs) there there are other societies that i say much much stranger uh than that and and of course in Africa is what i know but different writers throw different ropes around different continents. Uh, China belongs to Maureen McHugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saharan Africa, as opposed to Sub-Saharan, which is my specialty, used to belong to George Alec Effinger. Mm. Central America belongs to Lucius Shepard. You know, each of us find something there that just resonates and we learn it, and we start uh, utilizing it in, in a lot of science fiction. Well,
3: I, I think maybe 80 years ago, people would have said Burroughs had the lasso around Africa, which was well, so ironic because even he
2: admitted. Well, it Burroughs, did, excuse me, Burroughs didn't know shit about it. Yeah, and, oh no,
3: absolutely. The reason
2: Saber is the name he gave to the <laughs> lioness was because in the in the pulp magazine, it was Saber the Tiger. Yeah. He had no idea. Um, very few Africans ride around with little monkeys on their shoulder. Most of those monkeys, when they become sexually mature, the first thing they'll do is rip your face off. Uh,
3: I'm, I, the reason I say that, I'm I'm just wondering if there's something still, if there's something disturbing about Tarzan when you look at it through modern eyes, in, in sort of the way
2: well, Africa I don't was think portrayed. so. Um, you know, on on good old Edgar's behalf, you know, it's always the guys who have never read the books that a say it's racist because mm-hmm. the Waziri and some of the others are noble tribes. He didn't like the Arabs much. Yeah. And B, that Tarzan never married Jane. They were living in <laughs> sin. Because of course he married Jane.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, most of Tarzan has, has been criticized on moral grounds yeah. by people who never read him. Now, you can criticize him on literary grounds. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I grew up with him. I'm very fond of him. I'm not going to, but it would be very easy to do. Yeah. Uh, but on moral grounds, absolutely not. I mm-hmm. mean, the man was a was an arch-conservative Victorian. Of course there are no moral grounds for criticizing him. <laughs> you know, I, I doubt that John Carter ever had a sexual thought in his mind before his wedding night. My name is John Carter. Every now and then I get a really good mainstream idea, and then my agent has to bring me back to reality and explain where my audience is. I did that with uh, a Nebula nominee called uh, Ivory. Uh, I had seen the tusks of the Kilimanjaro elephant, which is the greatest trophy ever taken, in the uh, British Museum. And they were sold at auction, and just about every, like the Hope Diamond, everybody who owned them got killed for one reason or another. And in 1932, they were permanently placed in the museum. And uh, I thought it would really be interesting to write a story, uh, a novel, uh, just showing all the lives they touched during the 30 years between the elephant's death and when they were in the museum. And my agent explained to me that, well, yeah, if I did that, she could give me three or 4000 bucks, and we'd sell 100 copies. Mm-hmm. If I would remember that I'm a science fiction author and I would cover the next 7,000 years of their travels before they come back to Earth and take them to a number of planets, we could do all right with it. And we did all right. It was a Mm -hmm. Clark nominee in England, it was a Hugo nominee here, it won some awards in Japan. So, as I say, every now and then um, I have to be reminded what I am professionally. Well,
3: is that something a lot of science fiction authors, I guess even including Burroughs, uh, find themselves pigeonholed to some extent?
2: To some extent. uh, It's not so much a pigeonhole, because that implies... Uh, there are certain confines uh, stopping you from getting out to the great big world. Actually, the great big world isn't, isn't all that much to speak about. When, when a bunch of science fiction writers quit the field one after another in, in the 1970s because they were going to go out and get rich in the mainstream, what they found out is a typical mainstream book prints about 1,500 hardcovers. They don't sell very well, and you never get a paperback uh, sale. Mm-hmm. Whereas in science fiction, you could go sell 100,000 copies of a paperback, 30,000 of a hardcover. You could live on your advances. You couldn't do that in the mainstream. Really? They mistake the word mainstream for the more meaningful <laughs> word blockbuster, of which there are yeah, very few. Yeah, I think
3: people think of John Grisham
1: or something. Yeah, you know,
2: mainstream yeah. really isn't Stephen King. He yeah. writes Stephen King books. He doesn't write mainstream books. Right. Same with Dean Koontz. Same with Danielle Steele. So uh, I find that, yeah, you know, anything I write, I, I haven't had a reject in 30-odd years. I can sell mainstream but I can't pay my bills on mainstream. I can pay my bills if I write science fiction. Yeah.
3: Um, I, I wanted to go back to that intro you wrote to the land of time forgot, where you said it's not our job to function, uh, job or function, to predict the future. Right. It just happens now and then. But yeah. I, you know. It's more of a metaphor that you're using the future.
2: Yeah. Science fiction uh, is essentially a dystopian literature. It's a literature of warning, even in most cases, and that makes it sound grimmer than it should be. But By definition, every writer has, at best, one utopia Mm -hmm. to write about, because if there's more than one, then clearly he's not writing about a utopia. By definition, there can only be one. So everything else he writes is, to some degree or another, dystopian. And also, you're going to have to write about dystopias anyway, because you're writing fiction, you have to have a conflict, and there aren't any conflicts in utopia. So to some degree, they're all literatures of warning. If this happens, this bad thing can Mm -hmm. can occur. So to that degree... uh, once in a while we predict right you know you play with enough atoms you create a bomb you know you breed often enough you you get a lot of hungry people Mm. but that's not our job our job is just to take a particular fact and extrapolate upon it Mm. and uh... As I say, every now and then I'm right. I was right at the end of Purgatory. I wish I hadn't been. Uh, It'd be much nicer if Zimbabwe hadn't gone straight to hell in a handcart, exactly the way I said it would. Mm -hmm. And when I said it, I never thought it would. I thought it was a likelihood. That was all. Mm -hmm. Where where were
3: you completely off base that uh, maybe?
2: Oh well, uh, anytime I have suggested faster than light travel, which I do in most of my books, I'm off base. We're never going to have it. Anytime I have suggested that uh, we're going to colonize other star systems, uh, I think I'm off base because if we don't get faster than light travel, we're 10, 15 years from the closest of them and, and more likely 100 years from the closest of them. And I don't believe in generation ships. Uh, we, we, we have enough to do right here. Uh, one of the places everybody was wrong except Asimov was uh, once we reached the moon, only he predicted nobody would be very excited about it and we wouldn't be going back. Really? Yeah.
3: And everybody thought, well, there'd be Ah, be colonies there in five years. We reached
2: the moon in 1969, and I don't think any science fiction writer alive would have been willing to bet that we wouldn't have colonies on the moon, Mars, and Venus by 2000. Uh, The thought that we wouldn't go back to the moon after 1971, uh, they'd have laughed you out of the building. Mm -hmm. I mean, impossible.
3: Does it disappoint you that that sort of thing hasn't happened, or, or are you more concerned about things
2: uh, going It on doesn't disappoint or... me. Uh, I don't write hard science and mm-hmm. I don't write soft science. Mm-hmm. I write limp science. I write about people and people's problems. Yeah. And if you read my books, you know whether they're seven thousand years from now, halfway across the galaxy, or in Chicago tomorrow, they're the same people and they pretty much got the same problems. When when you stop recognizing either the people or the problems that I write about, that story becomes pretty meaningless. This is why, for most science fiction writers, aliens are just people that we hold up in, instead of to the mirror, to the funhouse mirror through science fiction. If you were to ever meet real aliens, they would probably smell colors, inhale ammonia, and excrete bricks, and you wouldn't begin to understand them. And if you couldn't understand them, why in the world would you want to write about them? Right. So uh, right. they're all metaphors. I mean, all we write about, if we're doing it properly, this has always been an argument I used to have with Hal with Clement every week, is you're writing about the human condition. Right. He thought you were writing about technological breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. Properly done, I suppose you're doing both. But if you're going to leave one or the other out, I leave the science down. Escape Pod, the science fiction podcast magazine. Find us at escape.extraneous.org.
3: Since here we are on a podcast, I, I wanted to mention that I have heard a couple of your stories on on some of the big-time podcasts, like Escape well, Escape Pod, I guess, is the main one you've been mm-hmm. telling to. Yeah. But tell me how you started getting into that. I, I guess I was under the impression that you're sort of on the forefront of podcasts. No, I'm,
2: I'm a computer semi literate Yeah. You know, <laughs> It's not enough that my my, con- my system be user-friendly. It's got to be user-servile. <laughs> uh, what happened was uh, this past spring, uh, Stephen Ely, who uh, o- owns and edits uh, Escape Pod, contacted the five short story nominees for the Hugo mm-hmm. and asked to uh, b- buy the uh, podcast rights uh, to each of them. And I must tell you, in all honesty, that I had never heard the word podcast until that day. I had no idea what it is to this day i don 't know how to download it from from my computer, mm-hmm. but I said, sure, nobody else had asked for him, so I was happy to sell him. He, he sold four the, or he bought four of the five mm-hmm. and he ran them and uh, about a month later, long before I had heard it, he, I finally talked him into making me up a CD so I could play it <laughs> long before I had heard it, I got a, I got a bunch of fan mail about it, but mm-hmm. I got one from a guy oh good Lord now i can 't remember his name has an Indian name and he lives in Paris. And he, w- he is a uh, producer-director of TV shows.
3: And, and, and we're talking about Down Memory down Lane. Down Memory
2: Lane. Right. And uh, he wanted to buy a movie option on it. And uh, I sat down with him and my agent. We negotiated, and he bought it. So I uh, wrote to Stephen to thank him and uh, point out that you know this guy paid me, let me really think, I, I think it was 80 times as much as Stephen had paid <laughs> me. So um, I, I was very feeling very kindly I, mean, I can't, I can't imagine pod. any podcast market is, is paying much you know, in well, terms I of, but Am I allowed to say what no, it is? Well? I, I, okay. I don't
3: need to know the specific amount It paid but about what a,
2: a reprint anthology pays yeah. for a story and yeah. people can figure it out from that so uh, he immediately said well will you sell me another and I said sure but is there any other way I can thank you and he said yeah he was going to have a suite at the Worldcon to advertise the uh, escape pod and uh He got the names of the the Hugo nominees from some committee or something, but he didn't know any name science fiction writers, and since I've known them all, I've been in the field for so all my life, Mm -hmm. would would I bring some by so he could uh, try and buy from them? So before the Worldcon, I wrote to Silverberg and Kevin Anderson, Nancy Kress, uh, my daughter who outsells me, Mm -hmm. and uh, Rob Sawyer, and Harry Turtledove, and a number of others. And I said, bring three reprint stories, short stories, to the con, and he'll probably buy one. He wants to meet you, et cetera. And sure enough, he bought at least one story from each of the name writers, capital I guess we would say, that I brought by to meet him. And that's what he's been running for the last month, if Mm -hmm. you've noticed. That's a hell of a lineup. So that was my way of thanking him. And since then, he's bought, I think, six more for me, but they they haven't come out yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Those are my only podcasts. Now, I've had some stories... um, there's a joint called Blackstone Media that bought uh, the audio rights to Birthright and to Kirinyaga, two of my novels, and they have eight and ten cd sets out that you can find in the bookstores, and then from time to time somebody will buy audio rights to one of my stories. Now I must say the only reader I ever liked uh, was a guy called William Wyndham, I guess a tv actor, Mm -hmm. and he read uh, a Teddy Roosevelt novella of mine I did called Over There, an alternate history and I, I had heard four or five of my stories prior to that and I couldn't stand the mm-hmm. way it sounded they made them sound a lot worse uh, than I thought the stories were
1: mm-hmm. and I wrote
2: William a letter saying you know, I thought I wrote a pretty good story but I didn't know <laughs> how good till I heard your reading and he evidently lives on a houseboat just off uh, wherever the hell it is in right. California Malibu or something
1: and he wrote back and we started
2: up a correspondence it's a very nice guy but he never read another one of mine. I'm heartbroken because he was great. Uh-huh. He did Teddy Roosevelt's voice and Blackjack Pershing's voice did and Ridwall Wilson's voice. And
3: did, you, did you ever great. listen to an old radio yeah. show called X-1? Oh, yeah.
2: Once upon a time, I had a whole collection of X-1 and... Uh, Dimension X, which yeah, was even better on, I think Dimension X was Astounding, right. and X minus one was Galaxy. Because
3: to me, that, that w- that's kind of interesting because it takes a, st- uh, a short story from Galaxy or Astounding and then does kind of dramatize it. Yeah. Instead of just and there reading. were certain
2: stories, you, it was interesting. You could tell there were certain authors who worked and mm-hmm. certain ones who didn't. The guy who worked better than any of them was Bob Sheckley because mm-hmm. he wrote funny stories with a lot of dialogue. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys who didn't work very well was Heinlein.
1: Okay. Uh, they yeah. were too
2: serious. There wasn't much dialogue. I and mean, one of my favorite stories is Universe. Mm-hmm. And they did the worst adaptation of that yeah. wonderful story. And I'm, I'm sure they did it about as well as it could be done.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, there was another one I remember especially that worked well, uh, Fritz Lieber's A Pale of Air. Okay. I've, and I've been, I did listen yeah. to
1: that one. Yeah. But
2: but but Sheckley and uh, William Tenn, any guy with wit, Fred Pohl, mm-hmm. and the guys who were serious, you know, they might have written... Stories of more importance or, or more lasting fame, but they just didn't adapt as well. Mm-hmm. And I learned over the years reading at conventions uh, a number of rules. One, don't read a fifty-page story; read four ten-page stories, right. so readers can concentrate better. Second, funny works better when you're doing a reading than serious. Right. Third, read in the first person, so you don't first-person stories. So you don't have a lot of he said, she said. Mm-hmm. Fourth try to read stories with a lot of dialogue. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you... And even then, I wasn't drawing full houses. I'll tell you what I did. Uh, The first couple of WorldCons I read at, uh, it was really lonely. I had like two or three guys in the room and I I decided I was never going to do that again. And I was reading at a regional convention. I'd read three, four stories. And when I was done, I tossed them in the wastebasket like I always do and I went out. I had left a sweater or a jacket in the room and I came back a couple of minutes later and there were three fans... Almost in a fistfight over the stuff I had thrown in the, in the waste <laughs> basket, and the light dawned, and I announced from that day forward, every time I finished the story at a reading, I would autograph it and give it to any member of the audience first one to ask for it. Right. And I've never seen an empty seat since in the last <laughs> twenty-five years. So that's another trick. If, if you've got any reader uh, yeah. listeners who who are writers and right. want to fill up their rooms, yeah. autograph your stories, announce oh, it in oh, advance, and right. give them out.
3: Well, it's well. I mean. Writing so, good stuff too, the, k- do, the kinds <laughs> of things
2: that fans consider collectible. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, see, now I, uh, I've I've never collected autographs because being in a position of giving away five or ten thousand a year, it's hard for me to believe they're worth anything. Although I see in the marketplace they are. Yeah.
3: Did you ever see an autograph of yours go for something that you said? what the heck is people? Like yeah,
2: people I I uh, I think it was at, at Chicago WorldCon in 1982, the first time that happened. I was sitting there doing autographing like, like other pros, and some guy brings up a copy of, of the hardcover Ganymede book, which, as I say, I'm not very proud of. And he was asking twenty bucks for it, oh,
1: Lord, and he, I signed it. Me and me he crosses second. out the
2: twenty and writes forty. I, I don't know. <laughs> and I thought, thought even then, you know, before anybody heard of me, I had won any awards or anything. My autograph was worth twenty oh, bucks. Oh, that was God. crazy. God. <laughs> but he got it. Tell me a convention story. All right, I'll tell you one about Isaac Asimov, and I believe this also appeared... uh, There was this collection of stories called Foundation's Friends where Isaac asked 12 or 15 of his friends to each write a story using his characters or universe. And after he died, they republished it and asked each of us to put in a little reminiscence about Isaac. And this was the one I put in. I'll, I'll tell it at a little greater length here. I was in 1989, I believe... And uh, it was at a Lunacon in New York, and I was the Toastmaster, and Jack Chalker had, was one of the guests of honor, and uh, we were roasting him on a Saturday night, and I was the Roastmaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, on Friday, I, I took a train, I was going to take a train into New York to do some shopping, into New because it was in the suburbs, it was Westchester Co- County. I took. I was taking a train in, uh, and I was going to look for some books and things I couldn't find in, in Cincinnati. Easily done. Uh, there wasn't much you could find in Cincinnati back then. It's a little better now. And I was going to meet Barry Malsburg for lunch, and, and he was going to drive me back out there. And I got to the train station. And there were like 20 trains, I didn't know which one to get on. And mm-hmm. a little old lady, must have been in her mid 70s, saw me and said, you know, you're having trouble, young man, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want a train that will get me to Midtown Manhattan where I'm going. And she said, well, I'm going, Uh, why don't you sit in the compartment with me and I'll show you where to get off. And as we're sitting, we're talking, and she asked me what I was doing, and I told her I was toastmastering a science fiction convention. And she said, well, the only science fiction writer she's ever heard of is the world-famous Isaac Asimov. And I said, well, I saw in the program book that he's going to be there. Why don't you come by and I'll introduce you? And she said, well, maybe she would. And she looked at me like she, she didn't believe a word of this. Mm-hmm. She told me where to get off. I did, and I shopped. I met Barry We went back out. And the next night, uh, we're getting ready for the roast, and it's a horrible blizzard. There's like a foot of snow on the ground. Cars aren't going anywhere. And this little old lady with, with ice hanging from her, her <laughs> eyebrows and her earrings comes in, and, you know, there's half a foot of snow on her, her coat. Uh, she couldn't drive. She lived about a mile away. She walked the whole mile in the blizzard, just on the off chance I wasn't kidding and she might see the world famous Isaac <laughs> from a distance. And Isaac is sitting there in the lobby with two or three gorgeous young girls pinching bottoms, as was his wont. And I Isaac, walked her Isaac was
3: good with the ladies. Oh, I-
2: Isaac pinched everything round that he could find. <laughs> and uh, he was just flirting. I, I don't think he ever took any of them to bed, but he did. He did love flirting and pinching. And um, I took her over and, and introduced her, and when he saw the condition she was in and that she was so old and had walked so far, he left the sweet young things behind, and he was her cavalier for the next three hours. She was his guest. She hung on his arm, and he took her to the roast, and he bought her a drink, and at one point she excused herself to go make a phone call to tell her family she wasn't going to be back home till 11 or 12, and at that point I walked over to Isaac and and thanked him and i say, you know, in exchange for your you're treating this uh, woman uh, so well you know on such short notice um i'm going to thank you by not insulting you when i'm doing the toastmastering and his face fell and i thought tears were going to fall down his cheeks and he said to not insult him in front of all his friends was the worst insult of all <laughs> and so i insulted him all night and that was the most world famous very humane, approachable man I ever met. And that's my Isaac story.
3: The transition from being a fan to having fans of your own. I I mean, is that that a difficult kind of transition? No, no, it's very easy. I
2: feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Uh, Like like a number of other writers, I, I live in constant fear That one of these days, the editors will figure out that if they didn't pay me, I'd write it for free. (laughs) And if they wouldn't publish it then, I'd pay them to publish it. I mean, you know, I'm doing exactly what I love. Uh, I'm 64 years old, and I had nine books out this year, and I have seven in press for next year. And I'm still signing contracts. I should be slowing down. But I love what I do. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, far from slowing down, I've changed to some publishing houses that will take shorter books so I can write more of them. i got a lot more <laughs> stories to write before I'm done. Mm-hmm. Mike, it's really been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, uh, let me know where you. I can. Oh, well, I'm never going to be able to download it. Well, send I'm send sure me a CD. I
3: can send you a CD. <laughs> okay, and, it, uh, and
2: at least show me where I can find it because yeah. I've got a listserv of, of close to 300 members of which Joan Bledig, sitting I'm here sure at the table I'm sure is one, they, I'm
1: sure they would like and to hear I would interview.
2: like to be able to give them the uh, the URL yeah. and let them, all of whom can wear computers better yeah. than me, go find it.
0: That was a fun interview with Mike Resnick. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you very much to Mike for sitting down with me. A couple members of the Chicago Muckers. Uh, the local chapter of the Burroughs Bibliophiles, had a really good time at WindyCon last weekend. We got to meet Mike and his wife, Carol, and it was fun. And I picked up a couple things I hadn't had uh, a chance to read yet. Uh, a couple Otis Albert Klein books, The Swordsmen of Mars and The Outlaws of Mars. I got a copy of the 1923 Russian movie, Alita, the Queen of Mars, which I read about recently on Bill Hillman's Herbzine site in an article by Den Valdren. So I'm sort of looking forward to watching that movie, although it's not supposed to be all that good. <laughs> but anyway, thanks for joining us, and I will talk to you in two weeks. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off.
3: For me, where you say like, I'm Mike Resnick, and you're listening to Dateline Jessu. Say Dateline. Dateline Jessu. Jessu. Okay. You know
2: Earth. All right. Say what? Just whenever. <laughs> or just I right. mean, just wing it. And I must tell you, in all honesty, that I had never heard the word podcast until that day. I had no idea what it is to this day. I don't know how to download it from, from my computer.
1: Hmm.